At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Second podcast in a day for us here, but there's so many trade rumors coming out now that we got to talk about them. That's what we're going to do for the bulk of today's episode. Also got to talk about some games, actual basketball being played some interesting ones coming up there with Philly and Miami. Yes, we even watched some of Minnesota and Sacramento because they have some players who might get traded. Wanted to check in on them a little bit. Dallas and Indiana as well. But let's start with the news that came out a couple of days ago now. The NBA in what is not their normal procedure, giving a new projection for the salary cap, lowering it to $115 million from the previous projection of $116 million. And the luxury tax projection has been lowered from 141 million to 139 million. The implication is that part of that is due to lost revenue from the league's issues in China, where they are still not back on Chinese state TV. Unclear whether there could be a further decrease coming next year if that state of affairs were to continue, because maybe, for example, they got paid all of their money already for this year, and I'm not sure what the timing of those payments is, whether it's going to come back, etc. But this gives a little bit less headroom now for teams this offseason, whether it's trying to use cap space, whether it's trying to stay below the apron, if you want to do a sign and trade or use your full mid-level exception, or whether you want to just not have to pay as much money in tax teams like Brooklyn, the Warriors, could see maybe the Clippers going into the tax, the Sixers, the Celtics. There are some teams that are looking like contenders. Bucks perpetually dodging the tax as well. Rockets, where even that slight decrease could affect the wiggle room that they have. Yeah, I, I think, though, there are two, to be two important things from this that I want to emphasize beyond what you mentioned, which I will echo, is one, this makes, it sounds like the next announcement is going to be in April, and that the announcement in April will presumably include a 2020-21 estimate, and that's the year that I'm circling. Both because there could be, as you said, additional revenue impacts that just aren't hitting this year, and so we might get a greater understanding of how the shift is happening that will affect it, but also because 2020 is a, twenty sorry, 21 is a more, oh, sorry, I, I phrased this wrong, the 21-22 season, the one when they're actually free agents that people want to sign. And, you know, this year, dropping the cap, it lowers a couple teams, you know, not that many, I wrote about this for The Athletic, that are going to use cap space. It, and as you said, it does constrict for the tax and apron and all that fun stuff. But 21 slash 22, that's a really loaded class that could have some impact. And then the other smaller thing for for the, for the upcoming year reducing is that it affects all of the things that are scaled. And so that includes 
all the players who agreed to max contracts, all the rookies, all the rookie max guys, they're if if this holds, they'll get a little bit less money. But also because in the new CBA, they tied to an extent the mid-level exception and a couple of those things to the cap value, those will reduce as well. So we won't get the full picture, obviously, until the end of the moratorium in July. But there are these kind of like ripple effects that happen with the cap going down. However, I was surprised that it went down this little considering it kind of looked like it was going to be damage control, that there was that that early notice from Woj saying that it had dropped. That might have just been the way information was getting to him and everything else. But I thought it was going to be dropping as far as like 113 or 112. And so 115 was actually a positive for those who like a large cap, as most of us do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, indications then are that either the loss of revenue wasn't as large as had been expected in the initial reporting. That was about a day before the word came out of what it actually was projected to be or that perhaps other sources of income had exceeded expectations and were making up for it let's talk though uh, now that we've set the scene here some of these trade rumors and i think the place to do that is with the golden state and minnesota rumors the wolves continue to remain involved looking for d'angelo russell they've offered andrew wiggins uh, according to anthony slater and logic uh the warriors have no interest in taking on that contract even though he does feel more of a positional need he's uh or plays a position that the warriors need perhaps more accurately because the wolves have had a need at his position for the entire time that he's been there as well so that's not going to happen. Wolves aren't going to do Carl Anthony Town. That seems no. pretty clear also. Uh, so what is the package? Presumably it's Gorgie Jang, Robert Covington, who certainly could help the Warriors next year under contract at, at that cheap price, as we know. And then some kind of draft capital. The reporting, mostly from John Krasinski and Shams, stating that Minnesota is believed to have drawn a line in the sand parting with its unprotected 2020 first round pick and since the wolves are looking like a pretty darn good bet to be the second worst team in the west that pick could be at the point where it is a great chance to be in the top four and even in a supposedly bad draft should have and it's still and it still has the upside i mean that there's the the part of this that makes it hard from minnesota's perspective is there's a lot of risk in trading their pick right now and Sure, D'Angelo Russell, if they make this trade before before at the deadline, Russell makes them better, which presumably makes the pick worse, assuming because they're not giving up towns in the trade. You could argue about if it's Covington or how, or how that works. Um, but then there's the the element of like kind of I, I think why this trade, if it happens, isn't going to happen in February is because I don't think the two sides can can fully calibrate value enough. You know, each side kind of is is too comfortable with what they have, and the Warriors they'll get more information presumably on the Russell Curry fit. Whether that information is positive or not, we'll see. Presumably, Clay Thompson will not play this year, so they won't get the full picture yet, and the Warriors will be better in terms of overall talent next year anyway. But the other part of this from the Warriors perspective is Minnesota's offer is largely going to be there depending on this unprotected pick because then maybe it gets too good that they can't trade it or you know maybe maybe things change but other offers can change and I think that's the argument from Golden State's perspective is not necessarily even oh Russell's going to be such a good fit it's it's pretty much the Wolves bidding against themselves right now and even though you and I both believe that the market for Russell will become more tepid than the Warriors hope and expect in July that at least there will be a market which there is not right now 
Yeah, there was a, a report from Shams that the Knicks have also registered interest in Russell and discussed potential packages. That again is presumably going to be some expiring contracts, maybe some uh, with some players with bird rights. You know, a Reggie Bullock, a Wayne Ellington, guys who might be able to help the Warriors or. or are on non-guarantees for next year and some future draft compensation they've got those dallas picks they have their own picks obviously also don't think the warriors have any interest in a kevin knox now if mitchell robinson were made available then i think maybe the warriors could start to have some interest but in any event the calculation for the warriors to me the end game for them is getting that next superstar that becomes available and getting the most attractive package for such a player now, are you better off having Russell or Jang, Covington, or Draymond Green and some draft capital as yet to be determined from the Wolves? Certainly d- depends what that draft capital is, but it could be, you know, you get the Wolves first round pick this year and or it's top four protected or something and it ends up being number eight and, you know, it's not really, and the Warriors get number six and, and it's not really that amazing in what's supposed to be a bad draft but russell to me while he has value and there seems to be a perception that which i don't share that he's played really well this year you'd like them to be a little bit better offensively when he's on the floor if he's he's playing well and they're the worst offense in basketball just just a thought maybe you might want to look at that but he's got value to some teams but i think that's limited and i think it's limited to teams that are kind of in the wolves situation where he's a floor raiser you're not even that worried about what the matchup trouble looks like in the playoffs i think he's gonna have real difficult problems matching up on both ends in the playoffs and being effective as we saw last year with the nets so what do you think danny are they better off getting some package of covington jang and the first rounders and if the superstar deal doesn't materialize you've still got a couple of players who can help you next year plus some draft picks or are they better off just holding on to russell until the summer and they might have a better chance to trade for a superstar at that point believing that this minnesota deal is always going to be there i think i'd probably hold because i because of the belief that the minnesota offer will be there and my guess is that minnesota is going to hold firm enough firmly enough on that first round pick for this year to not change that math you know they could if, if they basically say we will give it up unprotected then it gets closer but i think i would go the whole direct there even though i you know this isn't something new for the two of us we talked about this before the 2019 offseason started but then russell got interest from the wolves and then he gets the max contract from the warriors so it has materialized before even when i've been skeptical because like there weren't that many point guard needy teams last summer all that kind of stuff and it and russell you know he's putting up the counting stats that will probably lead to the people who believe in him continuing to believe in him so that is why i would go that direction how do you feel yeah, I mean, it's high risk, high reward, right? A bird in the hand worth two in the bush. Minnesota could get in a position where they draft a point guard that they really like and they're not as interested in Russell Well, and, and who knows if they could get three first-round picks for Robert Covington just like I did in the, in the mock-off season. But remember, the, none yeah. of those were blue-chip picks. Those were, you know, 25, 30, and then a future first. Yeah, and you don't know how much Minnesota would be willing to throw in. If Covington is going back to the Warriors and their asking price right now for him is two first-round picks, presumably two crappy ones, but still, to have to throw him into this deal makes it a huge loss for them of those picks in addition to whatever they might have to be sending out 
as well and so maybe the Warriors price just ends up being too exorbitant maybe the player you know what if it's Bradley Beal that they might be able to get right well does Washington really want D'Angelo Russell back in addition to that Warriors first round pick uh there's talk on Zach Lowe's podcast today that Washington might actually be looking to upgrade as they're only three games now out of the East well actually picture. so that that's something I want to talk about but briefly before that I think we should just finish up on the Warriors yeah yeah no I'm um, sorry I wasn't trying to change the subject here let, yeah. let me finish finish up here uh, but i'm just trying to think of all right if it's not the wolves do these other teams that might have stars available like a drew holiday with the palace probably not interested i would think in d'angelo russell we talked about that uh on the earlier pod that we released today the fake trade pod which i uh think is a lot of fun and i encourage you guys to listen to as i do every single thing that we well, do and I mean, you could see teams for for the longer timeline, somebody maybe like the Pistons coming out of the woodwork where they just they kind of want to jumpstart it a little bit. The impatient teams could end yeah, up being. You but, know, but those teams don't have. Yeah, current. Yeah, I, mean, the, I mean, frankly, Covington is probably the best player that could help the Warriors right now on these kind of jumpstart. Let's let's try to get into the playoffs kind of team. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a fair interpretation. Uh, so you know, the, Hawks are in that category, but they don't need a, Bulls. Yeah. Don't really have anyone I think that particularly interests the Warriors. Uh, so uh, I, I mean, there's some reporting from Zach Lowe, another report that came out today that. Four bad teams in the East, Atlanta, New York, Chicago, and Washington, uh, believe they can compete for a playoff spot next season, or they're under pressure to show signs of life now, so they're not going to sell just to sell. You know, a lot of that could just be posturing, too. Um, Especially because there are so few other sellers. (laughs) Who actually yeah, but, have things, but yeah, yeah and also let's just there? jump to that because I think that's that that was to be the other big part of this, and we we saw this in the mock deadline pod as well. Well, well, here can we can we finish on the Warriors as you okay. uh, <laughs> as you suggested? Now I will suggest it. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. So uh, and and this I, this this does relate to that larger point, and Mark Stein saying that the Warriors are widely expected to trade Alec Burks and or Glenn Robinson the third this week. I expect them to trade Burks, who has been he's been productive, especially over the last two weeks, but he's been productive overall glenn robinson it feel from what i'm kind of my, my reading of some tea leaves is that they would like to keep him and what's weird about that is because glenn robinson is on a one-year deal with the warriors the non-bird rights are almost useless unless he's willing to sign a minimum and if he's going to sign a minimum he could go play somewhere else the rest of this year but sometimes teams in these circumstances just they don't want them their eyes to wander at all and so if robinson is really interested in returning and is willing to accept whatever the warriors will offer which again we don't know for sure and maybe the offers are weak enough then you roll then you then you do it but maybe burks is less enthusiastic about that and that's why you talk to agents and try to earn the players themselves and try to get a feel for what they're thinking not that they have to make any binding commitments now yeah it does seem uh, that glenn robinson has been very happy to be in golden state has been quite glowing of steve kerr and if he stays one more year then they would have sort of bird rights on him and maybe he maybe he's the starting three for them next year who knows uh other thing too zach lowe saying that the Warriors should at least try to get under but that means that it's going to be Kevon Looney Looney has returned though has actually looked okay in these first couple of games back so the fears that oh man like who knows what's going on with him where it was just kind of murky was it's good to see him back and actually playing with some degree of force which well, he just wasn't able to do one thing i'll note on that sure getting under the tax would be would be nice because but it, it won't as i as i understand it it won't change the repeater tax calculations if they go over again next year because they will still have been three out of four um so if that if i'm right on that and they're going over next year in om- almost all likelihood because they would well, all well wouldn't they not be in next year and then they'd be in the year after that because you got to be in four out of five it's the fourth out of the fifth year so if you've been in three out of four 
you're okay. It's that four out of five is when you get into the repeater tax. They, the reason they're in the repeater tax this year is because they were in 1415. Oh, because it's they're cycling a second year out. I think you're right because the Durant yeah. year, the, the year Durant signed. Yeah, that was the one uh, I was or, counting. I'm sorry. On. Yeah, I think they were in 1516. I want to say, but they were not 1617. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so they would get one more year out of the repeater tax and be out this year as yeah. well. Okay. So, so that that yeah, that's yeah I'd the forgotten about 1617. Thank you for for catching that. Yeah. But obviously that's a non-competitive move, and and we'll see. They wouldn't be getting much tax distribution back. Well, and Looney's an important well. part of their team next year, probably. Uh, I mean, we think right so uh, if he in fact is actually looking like he's uh, can be decent again which you know is, it is I- ironic that he, this has happened now with him being coming back right before the deadline um let's turn now to the covington talks uh, on the minnesota side of this uh, to kind of close out that circle uh shams and john krasinski indicating that and the asking price has been two first round picks that may not have been in their article that could have been elsewhere but suitors including dallas houston who uh has re-engaged kelly eco confirming that and milwaukee dallas you would imagine it would have to be a first round pick of their own and in the future in that golden state second but as we know they are impacted with 21 and 23 picks owed to the knicks Covington would be a nice piece there. They still need that great one-on-one defender, but he could certainly help them defensively. I think there's no doubt about that, but I wouldn't advise if that's the price for Dallas. Houston, it's probably going to have to be Capella. We can talk about that a little bit, that there have been some talks there. Mock deadline predicts all. Uh, Boston apparently has been interested in Capella. Houston has also discussed Capella packages with Atlanta and Sacramento. I don't know why Sacramento needs him necessarily. They kind of got him in Rashawn Holmes already. Uh, and he's uh, well, and, cheaper and under contract. And, and Capella makes a much larger commitment to the Bagley at the four idea, which maybe Vlade's ready for it, but I'm not sure that I am. Oh, man. Um, yeah, and Capella has been struggling with what sounds like uh, plantar fasciitis. And, uh, oh, also in Houston. Jabari Young reporting that, according to league sources, Tillman Fertitta is seeking to shed additional salary off the team's $140 million payroll, hoping to avoid the luxury tax. Ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the NBA. Yeah. Now, you don't know that this is coming out, but we're doing a, uh, the Seth, Sam and I are doing a collaborative piece for the Athletic on the Rockets that is coming out, and we talked about the tax avoidance the last couple of years and the ramifications. So I just had to give a little little plug there, but also like thinking about it because I wrote a little section on it in the piece, like how differently the eighteen and nineteen seasons could have looked if the Rockets had been willing to spend what they could have. It is pretty amazing. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like Dan. You know, I don't know if it's going to be two first round picks and Capella to get Covington, and obviously there's so many machinations involved there. Uh, but moving Capella, getting a cheaper wing, that's uh, that helps you save some money. If that's part of your motivation, moving Capella starts to, to look better for you. Um, if you're Minnesota, we've talked about this before, but it's, it's getting put in more into stark relief. What is your like taking my ball and going home price for Robert Covington? It's a stronger price for me than I think for most, just because, again, I think the offers are going to be there. Remember, he's under contract for two seasons after this one at desirable numbers, and teams will have more spending power over the next, you know, they'll have, they'll have more flexibility and maybe urgency. Uh, I think it would be, you know, one good pick. I would actually prefer to two mediocre ones, especially if they're in this draft. So I don't know if there's a, if there's a reasonable lottery pick available. I would actually, in some ways, based on the reporting that I have, have it for 21 or 22 rather than this year, if that's doable, because it's probably not going to be a premium one. And 
the other one would be a you know I would accept a a, a lesser first with a player I, I I call this like a player of intrigue you know so it's not necessarily a definite starter that's something very different but a player who has a reasonable chance of being a rotation player and maybe some starter upside that type of that type of thing but outside of that I mean remember Minnesota it, it the longer they push this can down the road the more the Carl Anthony Towns element of this becomes a problem and I mean you and I were uh, got got a little bit of a reminder that we were planning on doing you know we were focusing a little bit more on Wolves Kings and then the Kings were up like 20 at halftime it got closer towards the end but still yeah and it was actually uh, Mark Stein who reported that they're looking for two first round picks for Covington and he also reported that Philly uh, has been involved in those sweepstakes and, we, and we've talked about how Covington would help them but he's probably not going to start for them and so that's uh, how much you really want to give up if he's not going to start for you all right what else do you want to talk about here well I think we should go back to the 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 point from Zach Lowe which I think is going to be what shapes this deadline if it ends up being true or actually kind of either way which is that there are these four teams in the east that uh, the the Hawks the Knicks the Bulls and the Wizards who all have potential pieces that could be useful to buyers and though in the pure pragmatist standpoint selling off some or all of those players makes sense Marcus Morris is a great example of this for many of us Davis Bertans is an example of this because of pressure sometimes from ownership largely from ownership though and the expectations maybe of their own season in the case of in the case of Mills and the Knicks that some of those teams even if selling makes the most sense they they might not sell and that could be posturing saying because because you're trying to trying to create more leverage by you know you've talked about internal versus external leverage and if you want to bring it up again you can but the idea basically being that it's not just about the best offer there's a walkaway price can try to try to ratchet up a little bit but I don't think that's necessarily as relevant in the case of like Marcus Morris because I think there's going to be bidding anyway but the idea that some of the sellers don't sell actually becomes a really good thing for the sellers who are willing to sell as long as they actually have assets whereas like for example like Cleveland they don't really so it doesn't really matter what they do all right lots more to get to here in terms of rumors say a quick break we'll be right back yeah before we took that break you mentioned the Cavs continue yet another report from Zach Lowe indicating that the Cavs have very little market for Kevin Love he thinks that the one wild card there is Phoenix that's always been the most logical to the extent any destination is logical as a destination and to the extent that the Suns are willing to be illogical then it's a logical destination does that make sense And it's also not a surprise that per Chris Haynes, Tristan Thompson is available in trade. The challenge there has been finding matching salary slash a team wanting him enough to to trade for him. Maybe somebody who could theoretically use Tristan Thompson's bird rights. I think that's, you know, it's possible there's a trade. I don't think it's going to move the needle too much. Um, well, we well, so quickly on that, sure. you know, it seems like... If it's a first-rounder and expiring contract, or even a first-rounder and salary that goes into next year, Cavs would be extremely happy with that. If it's a middling second, you know, it does seem like they might have some thought that they want to extend him, although perhaps not at that price. Windhorse was talking about this today. Or keep him around and re-sign him in free agency. To me, just get what you can, even if it's a second. I mean, I know they have a bunch of picks going forward, but they got a lot of space on this roster going forward. And and I think this is a place to talk about something that's come up a few times, and it probably is more posturing than anything else. Um, Yeah. Which is the idea of signing and trading these guys. And it's true that the 2019 offseason had a surge of sign and trades, and some of them were incredibly lucrative and powerful. I mean, Kevin Durant, D'Angelo Russell is is a great example of that. Those are the exception rather than the rule, partially because 
because usually teams, you know, teams just make it work another way. I mean, you could go back to when the Warriors acquired Iguodala in the first place and they traded picks to get cap space, that sort of a deal. But also just because the mechanics of sign and trades are usually very difficult, especially for non-star players. And you think about all the pieces that have to sign off, not only all of the teams involved, but also the player and they have to negotiate and everything like that. So it is possible in some of these circumstances that they, the teams could create value, but through various, various issues that it might not be as valuable. And so, you know, maybe some teams are interested in re-signing those guys with bird rights, but I think that the, the sign and trade value, like the idea of getting value for it, I think it's gonna be closer to like when Ryan Anderson went to the Pelicans rather than when, when D'Angelo Russell went to the Warriors. Yeah. I mean, that was the double sign and trade. Jimmy Butler was the sign and trade. We did see a fair number of those, but that was also in a case where, for example, with Jimmy Butler, there was enough coming back from the heat and the Sixers also had space and were fine getting Josh Richardson and then also pairing him with Al Horford yeah I I agree with you I think it was the perfect storm we also got more teams that are closer to the tax now those contenders could run into some problems exceeding the hard cap with those signing trades also so I agree with you I don't see that being quite as powerful of a weapon as it had been for a lot of these teams, especially when you consider that a lot of the premium destinations are not necessarily going to be able to take a, a guy in a sign and trade uh, because they don't have the matching salary or they're too close to the tax. A lot of issues there. Speaking of posturing, the Knicks apparently are looking for a lottery pick for Marcus Morris. That's per uh, Ian Begley, a lot of other places. Couple of problems there. Number one is who exactly who is a contender who'd want to trade for Morris has a lottery pick available. Uh, you know, maybe that's the Celtics, but I don't think they want him back and the matching salary is tough there. So other than that, nobody really has the lottery pick. Maybe there you could go far enough out with little enough protection that it could plausibly become a lottery pick, but no, that's probably just the usual garden variety posturing. They also have been trying to say that they might just want to re-sign Morris, who has been pretty good for them. Uh, and he says that he really likes New York. That's why I made the decision to come here. Going back in the decision I made, of course, with the Spurs is what he's talking about there. Um, I'm here and I exor- enjoy the organization. I enjoy the players and and I want to be here lunch. I mean, he is having the best season of his career. Like, I mean, that's something that shouldn't be forgotten is that sometimes, especially if you're a guy like Morris, like it's fun to just have a really good year, even if you're not winning. Like there is an individual component to this sport. And so getting traded to the Lakers and playing 20 23 minutes a game as the fourth option when you know he's tonight against the Cavs he's getting like every iso in crunch time and was delivering against Jetty Osmond admittedly but nonetheless like that's pretty fun especially if you haven't been in that role before so that feeling of actualization like it's not a not something that should be totally discounted especially for someone like Morris but you would think that uh, if the Knicks have a first round pick for Morris uh, they should probably take it do you agree I do. Uh, do you want to do a quick live reaction? It happened about 15 minutes ago, but I don't know if you if you saw it. The it's not no. a, it's not a trade. It's a it's a rumor from Woj. Ooh. Detroit and Phoenix are discussing are discussing disgusting will come later a deal centered around Luke Kennard. Huh. Because you know who needs another shooting guard? The Phoenix Suns. Well, maybe the thought is that Kennard could play next to Booker and Rubio. Like you could do a a three guard alignment between Rubio and Kennard and Booker. I mean, in terms of the prices, I mean, presumably it's a first round pick. Uh, you know, maybe it's Sharich if Detroit values him, but I think Kennard is more value than Sharich. Yeah, it's a little bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, but again, it's I'd it's like a, it's see. a rumor. We'll see. I mean, for a trade like that, it would depend totally on what the terms are because. I can't see a, a real 
commensurate value there. So it would probably if a trade happened, it would probably be one sided in my mind, one way or the other. It would just depend on which which side. <laughs> you know, like yes, uh, evaluating a trade does in fact depend on what the terms are. This is yes. the the analysis you can only get here. Yeah, on, on the dunked on basketball NBA podcast. Um, yeah, we haven't heard anything really about these other Knicks guys, which is a, a little surprising to me. Yeah, I mean that uh, the, the idea. This again, this is something in a collaborative uh, trade deadline piece that we did for the Athletic. Sam and I riffed on how weird it is that the team with the most creative possibilities is the Knicks, who just don't really, their front office doesn't really seem in tune with doing that. Like, because remember, the Knicks have guys at various salary levels, so they could make a lot of different deals. You know, they could use Bullock, they could use Elling, they could use just a bunch of different guys in combinations to try to make things work. They could be a great facilitator. And yet we haven't really heard anything about that either, which is, you know, could, could end up stagnating the market a little bit. One thing we should probably keep in mind, though, is, you know, we were critical of Phoenix for the Trevor Ariza signing last year. This year, we were critical of the Knicks for signing all these guys rather than using their cap space to absorb bad money. But it's looking like, at least in the case of Morris and with Ariza last year, Ariza, they got Kelly Oubre. This year, Marcus Morris, they're they're going to get a first round pick for it if they want him, you would think. Uh, so maybe there is really more of a thought here that, yeah, you know what? You sign a good player. You try to be good at the start of the year. Hey, you know what? It's probably not going to work. That's fine. But then you can trade such a player and hopefully get some value, maybe as much as you would have gotten by just taking on bad ma- money with that salary slot to begin with. So yeah, that's the, just something to keep in mind a little the, bit more. There is some merit, though. You might not always have an Ernie Grunfeld on the other end who makes that just absolutely no. crazy trade. That, yeah, I, I'm in agreement there. But, you know, Ariza may have, uh, there may have been some other suitors for him as well last year as we had gotten close to the deadline. He actually seems rejuvenated here in Portland. Quick hitter, the Spurs, we, we've wondered what the hell happened to Damari Carroll and Mark Bartelstein. And the Spurs are apparently working together to find a new home for Carroll, but he does have guaranteed money, about $7 million for next season, which could make that difficult. I mean, presumably if he could play, he'd be playing, but the Spurs have made some weird decisions on stuff like that before at times. It's just a question of what would have to go back to San Antonio in that deal because I don't think a team wants to just take Carroll. Maybe that could happen in the offseason, but a a team with a trade exception or some cap space that they're not using would take a flyer on him, but I I don't see him getting moved at this deadline. Yeah, I don't see it either just with the the, where his value is and the lack of urgency around the league. And Washington, so far, per Zach Lowe, has, they're not listening to teams that are inquiring about Davis Bertans, and some of that might relate to the urgency with Bradley Beal, Remember something that, that came up in the, in the podcast we did on Monday, that Bradley Beal signing that extension is another thing that has dramatically changed not only the 2019 trade market, but also the 2021 now at the deadline because he is unavailable. And so that's that's the blue chip guy that I think a lot of teams would love to get, but he is untradeable right now because of the, the structure of his extension. Yeah, and it does seem like there are efforts to maybe add a piece and compete for the playoffs, losing at home to the Warriors tonight, probably not going to help you there. No D'Angelo Russell for the Warriors, and they still waxed Washington. And so maybe that's part of why, even if moving Bertans were to make sense, this could also maybe lead to a massive overpay by Washington of Bertans. But, I mean, I would like to really see what it looks like with John Wall, Beal, and Bertans. Beal, of course, has really slipped defensively this year. Wall had really slipped defensively, and now he's coming off a torn Achilles. Who knows how much he's going to play next year. And Bertans their centers uh you know they might still struggle a little bit defensively next year too with this group but they could be interesting um and brooklyn did have a nice win over the suns they still remain a massive favorite to me to get that eighth seed but maybe washington is the team 
with the best chance now with all the woes in Chicago to push them small though that chance may be let's go to Miami another piece of reporting from Zach Lowe's big piece on on Monday morning that the Heat are among the teams that have expressed interest in Danilo Gallinari I could see Gallinari making sense within their offense I wonder what the matching salary is going to be because Miami has the combination where yeah it'd be great for them well, to get it, off it, of- it'd have to be either uh you know maybe even waiters and James Johnson yeah and the problem there is that those are negative value contracts OKC, it's not a big consequence for them to take on long-term money, but Miami is asset poor. So it's hard to see Riley putting together a package, not including Tyler Hero or Bam Adebayo, that would be good enough for Sam Presti to take on that kind of money. And that's why I don't think this. Oh, I I disagree. They've got plenty of guys. They got Kendrick Nunn. They got Duncan Robinson. Do you think they're trading those guys to get off a salary? No, I, I mean, you're saying, but... but no, like, I'm saying, like, together. of the guys that they're actually going to move. Like, yeah, you could yeah. put together a thing. I mean, that's their... Yeah, and maybe you could see Miami being interested in that if there's some indication that Gallo uh, wanted to resign there for just one year, potentially, or one year with the second year, nine guaranteed. I do think that he is a big fan of South Beach. The other complication with any trade between those two teams is Thunder are right at the tax. They don't want to take on more money, and Miami can't because they are hard capped from that Butler sign and trade so they might need to get a third team involved there and if they were going to try to move in that direction should we get to the Iguodala saga now yeah we can do that and it's it seems like the the clarification here what what, what changed is that Iguodala has, has pretty openly expressed that there are certain teams that could theoretically acquire him that he is not interested in playing for and in that circumstance he is open to not playing for that team <laughs> he is open to not playing yeah so that was in response to obviously these trade talks and who knows who's on that list outside of memphis but it seems very clear that memphis is not somewhere if he stays there that he would consider playing now he is under contract there is a rule in the cba that if you do not report for 30 days when you're in the last year of a contract that you then are not eligible for free agency that's not really for this situation. Be interested to see how that'd be applied in the middle of the season. That's really more for guys who want to hold out trying to get a contract extension at the start of the year. That's why you don't see holdouts in the NBA the way you do like in football, for example. But you also have the option of just coming in and, you know, pulling the Mo Williams or what Kyrie threatened to do. You know, you have some aches and pains. Oh, my hamstring acted up. You know, there's there's no basically there's no way they can force him to play for them. Like he if he is determined to do that uh, now, they can force him to show up if they wanted to. Uh, but I think just where he is in his career, right? Now, he just doesn't want to move to Memphis. His family is in the Bay Area. He has business connections here. He wants to be on the West Coast, wants to be with a contender. I totally understand the reaction from the Grizzlies young players, Dylan Brooks, uh, saying today that he hopes they trade Iguodala as soon as possible so they can play him and show him uh, what Memphis is like. And John Morant uh, echoed those sentiments. And I found that very refreshing. They should be taking it personally. He basically joked that he doesn't, he didn't want to go to Memphis and then they traded him there. And so, yeah, of course, if you're on Memphis's team, why wouldn't you take it personally if someone doesn't want to get paid $17 million to play with you? But I also see it from Iguodala's perspective and uh, I hope they do play each other when he eventually gets traded and I'll be watching that game. But what's the price now for Iguodala? That's where we're really struggling. We've heard this before with Dallas where Dallas was supposedly in on a team, on a guy who remember was Al Horford. They insisted that they were not. It turned out that they were not. That was Philly. From now, the thought is that there's this backstop of Golden State second for Iguodala. 
I'm not sure whether Dallas is on Iguodala's do not fly list or not. I'm guessing due to the geographical location, it probably is. And that that do not fly list is probably two teams long or, or the will fly list is two teams long, the two LA teams and the Lakers can't really trade for them as we've discussed ad nauseum due to the lack of assets, appropriate assets and matching salaries. And this may also be, of course, an attempt to chill any other teams who might trump a potential Clippers offer. I think that's really what's happening here is he wants to go to the Clippers. The Clippers probably don't want to give up that first round pick. Memphis thinks they have other offers or they're trying to make it look like they do. I would assume this whole talk about Dallas being in with this Warriors second is coming from the Memphis side rather than the Dallas side. Because certainly if you're coming from the Dallas side, you have no reason to let anybody else know what your offer is so they can beat it. You're hoping that nobody makes an offer and you can get them for that. So that's clearly coming from the Memphis side. And so this is all a game of chicken now between Iguodala and Memphis. Iguodala trying to drive his own price down. The Clippers don't want to give up probably their first rounder if they did that. And Mo Harkless, I'm sure Memphis would be totally happy to move him. And so now we'll see uh, who ends up winning. My prediction is he goes to the Clippers and it's not a first round pick. I've been on that for a while. Maybe it's one of those Detroit picks. Maybe it's two. But uh, this has been a fascinating game of poker since the moment Iguodala dollars traded there i'm really enjoying it yeah i i'm definitely enjoying it too uh, another poker game that's going on because he's under contract for next year is the derrick rose one and so the the shams reporting is that they're looking for a lottery pick that could be posturing but where they're pick up the ball and go home line as we talked about with barbara covington is is really challenging because rose could be a part of the pistons team next year really whatever they want to do whether it's sell tickets when they're still not good or you know they could trade him in the summer i don't think the asking price is going to change significantly um i don't think there's a team that's necessarily pushing it and then for markeith morris zach Lowe reporting that they that they should be able to move him for a second we don't know the quality of the second but remember morris has a unlike his twin brother he has a much lower salary this year but also has a player option for next year so it's a little bit more complicated to acquire yeah and with rose the teams we talked about lakers philly a lottery pick it's just not going to happen again there just isn't a team with a lottery pick to trade for derrick rose that needs him the value for yeah he's a pretty good six man but he's also injury prone he can only play a certain number of minutes yeah he's under contract for next year no options or anything this is one that i think for the reasons you mentioned is more likely where he could just stay on the team because the offer isn't there i'm not sure that a first round pick is necessarily coming from say a philly you know that seemed like one of the more logical fits to us that's where he ended up in the mock we did do it for I think I was Detroit. I did it for the two second rounders because, you know, what's uh, I don't give a crap as an organization about keeping a guy around and, you know, winning 28 games instead of 25 next year. He's not a part of the long-term future. But uh, Detroit, of course, uh, may not see it that way. Speaking of Detroit, we have additional reporting from Woj inside the last minute as we're recording this on the possible package gaining traction for Luke Kennard. Oh, yes. Tra- oh, God, I love traction. My favorite. Javon Carter, Elliot Kobo, and a first-round pick. And what one of the things that's notable there is the Suns pick situation after they traded that Milwaukee one for Ty Jerome is they just have all their own firsts and no extras. So if a first round pick is going, that means it's something involving the Suns own stuff. Now, maybe that's not like their pick unprotected this year or something like that, but they don't really have any of those clear late first round picks, which made more sense in a theoretical negotiation. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't like giving up a first rounder for someone who's probably not going to start for you since Devin Booker is their well, starter. And who's also has missed 28, 22 straight games with tendonitis, as, with tendonitis in his knees. Not yeah, uh, I'll think, I think, yeah, bilateral knee soreness. Get it, get it right here. Well, Woj is recording, recording as tendonitis. 
Oh, well. Uh. <laughs> Source arguments. <laughs> well, so uh, I think, and offense isn't the problem for the Suns either. They got to get better defensively. They're, when Devin Booker's on the floor, they got a 113 offensive rating. Like, that's really good. That's part of why Devin Booker very clearly should have been an all-star. We'll talk about that a little more later. Don't worry. But for Phoenix, yeah, I really just don't understand that one. I mean, maybe they just think Luke Kennard is that good. If you're the Pistons, like, he's one of your younger players. Or they just want to go roll with Bruce Braun and Sfi Mikhailiuk, who is shooting it pretty well uh, of late. You know, the Pistons, as it were, haven't really dropped off much. Uh, not that they were doing great before Kennard went down. So yeah, I don't. I, I really don't quite understand this one, but uh, we'll, we'll see if anything ends up happening. Right? I mean, generally, for it to get out to this level where they're like the specific package is being discussed before you actually know about the trade, that's a that's a rarity. It, it is. Um, let's jump to the Pacers. Perlow, Indiana. If could he thinks they could get a first round pick for Aaron Holiday, who has been pretty marginalized since Victor Oladipo came back, but they're planning on keeping him. Yeah, it depends what the value of that first rounder is, but I think they need him as a backup point guard in the playoffs because, yeah, TJ McConnell might be a better regular season player. He pushes the ball up, et cetera, et cetera. But he also, as we'll talk about a little bit here, kind of McConnellizes the game and he's got to be on the ball in the playoffs. We've seen him lose his spot in the rotation in Philly. And, you know, I think you, you just run into the same problems as you try and get deeper in and holiday as much of a coach's favorite but he also has a, a more varied skill set than mcconnell lowe's reporting on the bogdanovich situation is interesting he reported that the lakers as we know already and the hornets have expressed some interest sixers have not had any substantive talks with them so far uh and he zach thinks i agree that they should get at least a first round pick for him and zach also saying that harry giles who the kings for no reason declined his fourth year option i actually would kind of like him in golden state on a make good minimum type of contract with just his passing ability he would be a Kerr favorite for sure they wouldn't need him to play that many minutes uh, but it seemed like he just was injured at the start of the year and they gave up on him. now he's like been in, in the rotation playing normal minutes uh, at least while marvin bagley's been out again and, and, and Giles was a late enough pick that declining the declining the option becomes a challenge because for those who were unfamiliar, when you decline an option on a rookie scale contract, that team slash whoever ends up with his rights at the end of that, this was the Austin Rivers problem, it cannot pay him more than the value of that declined option. Basically, you can't use it as a workaround to give that guy more money. So the teams that would be interested in trading for Giles now has to be somebody who is interested enough in him that they would want to sign him potentially or evaluate him for next year, but also is comfortable not signing him for more than that option and basically taking themselves off the board if if he wants more than that or because he's, Giles will be unrestricted, wants to go somewhere else. All right, finally, notes on Milwaukee that Indiana first-round pick is kind of burning a hole in their pocket. They also have a lot of rotation guys. I still think that Bogdanovich would be someone I'd be going very hard after if I were them. Covington is mentioned as well. I think that with their defensive system, number one, and the fact that he's just, you know, an okay shooter, not a great shooter. They have these okay shooters already. And, you know, is he that much of an upgrade on a West Matthews? I actually like, like West Matthews more as a shooter and a one-on-one -on -one defender. Covington's better as a help defender, obviously. And, you know, they've, they've got plenty of these depth guys on the wing. But another 
thing of interest is that Sterling Brown is going to be a restricted free agent this summer. A lot of teams have actually asked the Bucks about him. So it appears that he has some value despite the fact that he hasn't been in the rotation. And that's something that we can look at as well here if there's a team, you know, to, if you have to get beyond that Indiana first round pick as far as uh, adding some value. I'd take a quick break here and let's talk uh, about the games tonight. So we're already 50 minutes in here and we'll do a little more truncated version of these gamers than we might have normally. Let's start with this Philadelphia Miami game though, where Miami just absolutely trucked basically Philly's full team outside of Josh Richardson. Yeah. And something that I was reminded of during this game is while it is not as extreme as it used to be, Philly does still get worked to an extent in the turnover game and that was I mean this is about as extreme as as you see where it was 14 to 3 in terms of the margin there Miami had eight steals compared to three turnovers for themselves which is pretty amazing and I thought you know there were moments in the game where the the mistakes were exacerbated in that and also I mean Embiid was was huge in the first quarter and then toned it down a little bit after that and then you know he ended up with 29 but it wasn't it it wasn't it was and he wasn't the big reason why like they lost or anything but like it Actually, I should just focus on the turnover part of this because that was the thing that was most striking to me. And remember, going back to that Boston series, that was something that sank them in a few games where it's just like they couldn't get themselves out out, into a rhythm. Well, this is a defensive loss for Philly. They actually played well enough to win offensively. 34% from three, that's fine for these guys. Hit the offensive glass pretty good. I mean, they did have the 14 turnovers themselves, but that's not a a crazy, terrible number. Embiid, 9 of 14, had a nice uh, offensive game. Ben Simmons had 16 points. But they gave up 137 to Miami. And yeah, some of that was some hot three-point shooting. But this is a really good three-point shooting team, Miami. And and I thought the Sixers really, really missed Josh Richardson in this game because they had Tobias Harris trying to guard Duncan Robinson off of screens. And he was fantastic. Four of eight from three. Got a a couple of three-shot fouls as well. Finish was 19 points plus 24 in 34 minutes. And Tobias Harris, because they wanted to have Ben Simmons on Butler, who we'll get to, Tobias Harris had to guard Duncan Robinson. They started Shake Milton. He was on Kendrick Nunn. You also got Al Horford. He can't chase anyone around the screen. So it's got to be Tobias Harris. And Tobias Harris can't do that against Duncan Robinson. And then Harris, they tried to have him go back at Robinson in the post. And he was 3 of 12 for 6 points. <laughs> and 0 of 6 from 3. Um, certainly it feels like for Philly, things are going very poorly right now. They've been off on the road. I think this put him at 9 and 18 on the road. I don't put as much of a home road disparity, at least as it carries over from the regular season. I think it's just, you know, you are you have a home court advantage and you don't in the playoffs and that's important and they are trending towards not having it. But I don't think the fact they've been especially good at home and especially bad on the road, these playoffs necessarily means or, or I'm sorry this regular season necessarily carries over to the playoffs um but the other thing Danny that was so huge was Jimmy Butler who was really locked up by Ben Simmons the last time these two teams played in a classic in Miami last month I mean it was, I think it was right at the end of the December that that was it, it yeah. was it was my game of the month for December right uh Jimmy Butler was unbelievably he had his best offensive game of the season 38 points on 14 of 20 from the field. Almost all of that was from two. He was 12 of 18 on twos and two of two on threes. Also got to the free throw line eight times, made all those. And Butler, yeah, he did a, did a masterful job of getting getting to his spots, getting getting finishes. And yeah, I mean, the, the dynamic that we had seen of how Ben Simmons did such a nice job, like it, it didn't really hold in this one. Yeah, and a lot of that was that it was pick and roll play transition butler uh, was getting his cuts getting fouled hit a couple of threes right at the end as he was really heating up and miami started to pull away but butler i think he had either 36 or 38 of their first 79 points and then they just really blew him away at the end of the third uh 
so that's a great time though for Miami and we'll see whether having Josh Richardson around changes things but uh and for Miami also Goran Dragic was outstanding I mean I really think Josh Richardson would have made a pretty big difference Matisse Thibel wasn't that effective only played 15 minutes he, he got in foul trouble they had to play Cork Maz a, a fair amount James Ennis maybe they could have brought him in and started him over Shake Milton but they felt like they needed more shooting and Ennis wasn't effective either Mike Scott shot it well but a lot of that was in garbage time uh he got lit up defensively but uh, sad times right now in Philly although at least Embiid got back on track after that total stinker on Saturday against the Celtics uh, mirroring his terrible game against Marcus Ole and the Raptors uh, earlier in the year um a couple of injury issues though Myers Leonard went down with a sprained ankle and Tyler Hero had some foot soreness he wasn't able to continue in the second half um since we're doing kind of a lightning round anything else you want to say to wrap up on this one uh no I think we can uh, move on well to, Al Horford was invisible again Oh yeah, yeah. I, I I didn't even think about that. Yeah, six points, twenty two minutes. They, they, I mean, he could. They got worked largely when the starters were on the floor, yeah. but especially when. Harvard yeah, but there's a, a another time. Uh, and Bam Adebayo was awesome uh, again. He had eighteen points and eleven assists. Two rebounds from a good game. Oh yeah, Dallas and Indiana. This was a really compelling game for me. How's up? Because the idea you brought this up during the game about how Indiana's lack of their lack of switching is actually hurt against Dallas maybe more than than any team just because that's the easiest way to fend Kristaps Porzingis. Well, especially this version of Dallas. And they did actually finally yes. get forced to switch. Um Porzingis later, later yeah. best game since his injury, 38 points. 10 of 20 from the field, 6 of 13 from Dantani. Really had it going in the first half. And then 12 of 12 from the foul line, which is just, he has not really gotten to the foul line at all. Um, so it, I thought he was outstanding. And they started off with Miles Turner guarding him. They tried Sabonis some as well. Neither of those really worked. Uh, Turner let him get going early. But, you know, it's just hard for a seven-footer, especially when Porzingis is 7-3 and he's taking these threes four feet behind the line. He hits his first couple and Turner was trying to find some ways to help as well uh they did actually keep him out of the paint but Dallas got up 45 threes made 18 of them and Porzingis uh, as mentioned was six out of 13 Dallas was able to do just fine on the glass they actually beat the Pacers uh, on the glass as well uh, where Porzingis can struggle there at times what have you seen from Victor Oladipo since he's returned to me by far the most important thing is is the burst I mean we saw it on the defensive end I mean that he getting getting into passing lanes being a little bit more aggressive on closeouts and the jump shot will come around I'm not particularly concerned this is very similar to when we talked about his debut game back on Wednesday and so I'm I'm encouraged overall by what I've seen so far I'm encouraged and I'm not his passing looks really good to me those closeouts Mm -hmm. did look good and they were actually missing for him in the months before his injury when he was dealing with that soreness you know we didn't see that that level but he's definitely has hurt them you know they had to claw back against the Bulls they lost at home to the Knicks lost at home again to the uh, Mavs without Luka Doncic he was one at 10 on threes tonight and you know some pretty decent looks and he supposedly has been working on expanding in range he did have that one three well, and, and hilarious that again the three that he made was so was 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 in this case it was long and that made it difficult but remember the one in his debut game was that one that sent it to yeah but I mean he was 417 for night points like it's pretty much impossible to have that kind of a, a stat line and be helping your team and yeah he's thrown some nice pocket passes but it's only two assists in 23 minutes so he's coming off the bench until the all-star break i do think it'll be easier once he's starting again and they kind of have a plan i mean he's coming out here now and feeling like you know 17 shots in 23 minutes is just too many uh for him you know he's 
basically tying for the team lead in shots in 23 minutes now his backcourt counterpart Malcolm Brogdon also was six out of 17 he really struggled really the only pacer who was particularly efficient was DeMontis Sabonis and they were seven of 34 from three overall uh Dallas had some real success as they got out to what ended up being a decent advantage going with zone defense that helped the Pacers again shooting it so poorly it was a major problem there um keeping them out of the paint which is where they want to live tj mcconnell had a really nice defensive game going against jj barea it was kind of sad to see barea ended up spraining his ankle and having to leave the game but mcconnell was doing all the things that barea used to do to guys with his energy and really kind of swallowing him up running him ragged a little bit barea had a couple of ugly turnovers and mcconnell did a nice job uh, with his pressure willie collie stein in a mavericks uniform this is now his fourth game uh, amazingly enough and yeah he, he played in that zone got beaten a couple times by sabonis overreacted to tj mcconnell penetration a couple of times but he, he was enough of a force back there we didn't we haven't seen him yet really with Doncic, so that's really what he was brought in to do is be that lob catcher with luca he didn't have as much of an offensive place and that's i think part of why he only played the those six minutes in the first half and they went smaller uh actually playing ryan broke off 19 minutes uh, although he struggled from three um anything else you got on this one no, I, I think we could talk very briefly. I think you and I both watched the ending, which sadly was far too long, of Nick's Calves. <laughs> no, the, no, we don't. Do you really think you really want to say that? I, I can't say Well, I just, just the idea just the idea that Marcus Morris is their crunch time scorer, especially with, with R.J. Barrett still out due to injury. And, I mean, he did he did fine in that role and being guarded by Jetty Osman. Not that Osman is, like, horrendous, but he, you know, and especially because the Cavs don't have that much help. Tristan Thompson didn't play in the game, fueling trade speculation all that. And, I mean, preemptively, you keep guys out in this kind of circumstance. It's not like the Cavs are fighting for anything. They've had a couple of rough losses. I mean, they lost at home to the Knicks, and they also lost to the Warriors I think in the last three days so their lottery ping pong ball standing is is improving by the minute um any any other game this was a weird night because there were games that I was excited to see and then some of those ended up kind of toning down for different reasons uh were there any other ones that caught your now, eye let, let's hit on this uh the, the all-star snubs so all-star rosters came out last week we knew who the starters were already East Reserves, Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, Chris Middleton, Cal Lowry, Bam Adebayo, Jason Tatum, DeMontis Sabonis, West All-Star Reserves, Russell Westbrook, Dame Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Nikola Jokic, Chris Paul, Brandon Ingram. I thought by far the biggest uh, snub was Devin Booker. I had him eighth on my list uh, of Western Conference candidates in part due to the Suns' crazy offensive performance when he's on the floor. And I just didn't really see Ingram or Westbrook as being at all in his league. Especially because... Westbrook isn't the reason, the big, at least the biggest reason, the Rockets are 31 and 18 as we record this. And Ingram's Pelicans, if we want to call it that, you know, Ingram's Pelicans and the Suns currently, as we record this, have the same record. So it's not that even the idea of good player on a great team getting that benefit and Booker has been materially better to me than Ingram so he deserved it. I mean we went through all this when we did our picks and what was stunning to me I don't I don't think I ever remember a time where I've taken the time to go through a conference and three different players have been chosen than the players that I picked like three and they, it wasn't even just like the bottom three for the bottom three it was pretty different than that yeah I thought Mitchell was my first guy out for as, as you'll recall I had Booker Paul George and Carl Anthony Towns over Mitchell West Brook and Ingram I just think if it is close that, that those guys overall are better players I don't put as much of an emphasis on the missed time 
Westbrook has come on, but he's just been too damaging in terms of the missed shots. And this is uh, his shooting issues that have been going on for a long time. Like I believe in uh, some of those issues now. But Booker to me was the one where I was just like really surprised. Towns and George have both missed time. Like I have a little bit different of a philosophy than some other people do of giving more credit to just who I think is the better player and not defaulting to miss time as much. But Booker to me, especially for Ingram to make it over Booker, I really just didn't understand that at all. I mean, maybe that had something to do with the fact that Westbrook and Mitchell were guards and so was Booker and Ingram was front court and there wasn't as much competition in the front court. Maybe that's why he made it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that I thought was uh, was pretty bad. And then in the East, for Bradley Beal to not make it, I thought it was, again, another one where he's just at such a higher level than your Sabonis, even your Jason Tatum, the two guys who made it that I thought he should have made it over. And I, I did go with Kyrie as my last guy. Again, I understand why he wasn't in because a lot of people have a different philosophy than me, which I think is defensible of just, hey, he's missed too much time. Uh, but I also thought that Jalen Braun, to me, had a better argument than either Tatum uh, or Sabonis. Uh, you have any other comments on the East here? No, no I mean, I... I thought Beal should have been in and he wasn't. And it's, it is it is to me frustrating when it, a, a clearly bad team with a clear all-star caliber player that he doesn't get the benefit of obviously being an all-star caliber player. You know, like those are the those are the types of ones where it shouldn't be as hard as the coaches make it seem. Like Bradley Beal is not the reason the Wizards aren't good. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately what's uh, unfair. If you, if you really have two guys that are neck and neck and you want to default to who's on the winning team, I think that's fair. But it just Beal is in a totally different class of player to me uh, than someone like Sabonis or even Tatum. So I excused Danny from this part because I wanted to get into the Sabonis thing a little bit more. Since there is a firestorm of criticism and oftentimes vulgarity from the state of Indiana after I tweeted that I thought Sabonis was the worst actual player selected to the All-Star game in a long time. I think you'd have to go back probably to Teague and Korver to find a non-injury replacement just in terms of how good I think the player is not necessarily what they did in that 40 games that season before the all-star rosters were selected that of course was egged on by members of the Pacers broadcast team who actually happen to have a lot of respect for at least in terms of the quality of their work I wish they could have disagreed in a more civil and adult manner rather than go on about how they would never listen to my show and I'm just tweeting this for clicks on a free website but they apparently took it personally that I was critical of the selection of this player that they apparently really like and respect on the team that they cover and to that I'll say I did not at DeMontis Sabonis I'm not going out of my way to put this take in front of him I thought there are other more deserving players I don't like the system and the way that players are valued that put him in there so this notion that I was somehow crossing some line in saying this is ridiculous lots of people are very critical of players getting left off and they're not willing to say who they should have been left off I think it should have been Sabonis I'm going to say that Because guess what? There are a lot of disappointed players and fan bases in Washington and Boston and Brooklyn and Milwaukee, just as much as Pacers fans are are happy for DeMontis Sabonis. So this idea that I was trying to ruin this great moment for him, sorry, that's the business, but these guys took what I said about Sabonis 
personally and then decided to respond with ad hominems which again you will never hear me publicly criticizing a colleague like that to the point of casting aspersions on their overall work and hey guess what you guys didn't have those criticisms of me when i had thad young for second team all defense last year or victor oladipo for second team all nba two years ago or was talking about miles turner in the defensive player of the year conversation last year and you're also not really getting that if the Pacers are a really good team yeah I might be lower on Sabonis but I'm probably also pretty high on the rest of the players and the coach and the depth that they have for them to be good so I might suggest that a more civil way to disagree be saying hey I really disagree with this take and maybe leave it there instead of getting to the point where you're being insulting of a colleague especially when it's as dumb of an insult of I'm doing it for clicks on a free website you know fans are gonna fan if you don't follow me and you don't listen to my show i really don't care what you think but i do expect better of actual media professionals now of course i do realize that this isn't necessarily a popular opinion zach Lowe had sabonis in his locks but if i just agreed with what everyone else said all the time then there would be no reason for me to go through the work that i go through and have this process where we go back and look at our predictions and try to get better i think more than just about anyone in this industry so here's why i felt that way about Simonis. i am guessing that my opinion as it so often is in these debates that you get into with local fan bases our opinion on what the player does and what he is is probably not going to be that far off but our assessment of how valuable that actually is across the league landscape and particularly in the modern NBA is going to differ. So let's start first with what Sabonis is. He's playing the four right now, but he's basically a center. The only reason that he can play the four is because you have Miles Turner next to him who can play the four offensively, space the floor for Sabonis to do his pick and rolls and DHOs and post-ups. But I think pretty much everyone would agree that his natural position is center. If you're talking about him as a four defensively, getting out on the floor, he's a liability. Getting out to shooters, he naturally is going to want to protect the paint. He's got quicker feet than you might expect for a center, but against fours, he's going to be overmatched from a quickness standpoint. A lot of teams want their fours to switch. He's not really capable of doing that against high-quality ball handlers. I do think he tries hard. I think he has a decent idea knowing where to be. And then at center, if you watch him, I don't think you can really conclude that he's better than average. He does play a lot of center, obviously, on the second unit. But as a rim protector, as a pick and roll defender, it's average at best. He's got pretty short arms. He can get his chest on it, guys, and make some rim protection plays. Again, I think he can get his body into position reasonably well, but he's not a great leaper. If he's not directly in front of the ball handler, he's going to struggle to impact shots around the room. A lot of people would point to his defensive rebounding. He does get a lot of rebounds per game. But it's hard to conclude that he's a difference maker on the defensive glass. Number one, because very many defensive rebounds are non-contested. And number two, when he's out there playing center, they're a below average defensive rebounding team. And yeah, they don't have other great rebounders around him. But if you're a below average defensive rebounding team, when your center is on the floor, it's hard to conclude at a minimum that that guy is a difference making defensive rebounder. So yeah, I'm well aware that the defensive stats are really high but if you watch him you just you can't show me how he's being a dominating defender you can't show me how he's impacting things that for example an rpm has been the 12th best defensive player in the league and he's just not there's no way that that's true maybe if you squint hard you might say he's slightly above average as a defensive center and maybe as a defensive four a little bit worse than that and when you're a big defense gets progressively more important So then you look at the offense and you really, to me, to be an all-star as a center, 
when you're not a good to great defender, you have to be an amazing offensive player. Does he fall into that category? I think for some people, they might think that he does. He is a very solid passer. He does the DHO game very well. He makes good decisions on the short roll. If he can pass with his left hand out of the post, he, he can make good decisions when he's double teamed. Set solid screens. There's a lot of guys who do that. As a post-up guy, he definitely just destroys mismatches. I think he's limited against really solid defenders, good defensive teams, because he still is so left-hand down, and he's made a few strides there. But if you keep him off that left hand in the post, you're largely going to have success. But that's easier said than done for a lot of guys. He's a, definitely a quality post-up player. As a shooter, he's pretty limited. The three-point shooting, he's not spacing out to three. He's taking a lot of mid-rangers. His efficiency is not that amazing. 58% true shooting for a guy with his role is not fantastic he really was a lot more efficient last year he's taking a lot of mid-rangers when he and turner play together the pacers are very low in shots at the rim extremely low in threes and take basically mid-rangers at a rate that would be the highest in the league that's not great for you and he's part of that that's part of why he hasn't been as efficient the mid-ranger is not really a great shot for him so he's kind of a tough fit again you're saying all right if he's going to play center and we're going to put a traditional spacing four around you now you've got him as your defensive anchor and again i think he's only average at that he is very lucky if you're playing in a too big alignment to have Turner next to him. And he makes a lot of what he does possible on a lot of teams that wouldn't be the case because Turner's skill set is a rare one. But to me, the type of offensive player I'm talking about is a Carl Towns, Nikola Jokic, who's at a much different level as a passer than Sabonis. I think we've seen that there are a fair number of guys who can average five assists out of the DHO game the way Sabonis can, you know, your Yusuf Nurkic, Plumley back in Portland, Bam Adebayo, good passers, good decision makers. Not every center can do that, but there are a reasonable number who can. And those, a lot of those are just out of the DHO game, guys cutting off of them. You know, it's not necessarily their gravity that's creating the opening or just unbelievable backdoor passes to guys the way a Jokic is going to throw. So that's a good skill. It's a useful skill. It's not necessarily an irreplaceable skill to me. Another way I think you're an all-star center is if you're a true difference maker on the defensive end, like a Rudy Gobert, Adebayo. I don't think he was a, a deserving all-star selection in the West, but even Kristaps Porzingis, where he is really barricading the rim defensively, and then he's spacing things out offensively, giving space for others to work. Sabonis, so to be effective, he's got to be involved in the play, and then a lot of those are as a dependent player as a rollman and there are a lot of players who are able to be pretty efficient as a role maybe not quite as good as him there is a really high replacement level at center right now in the nba and i don't think that sabonis is the guy that you're going to offensively where you're really making the opponent change what they do the way a Towns or a Jokic or even someone like Porzingis, you saw the Pacers today, had to change up their base defensive scheme to switch everything. Sabonis, yeah, if he posts up and he's got a mismatch, you might need to send a double team, but it's not an all-encompassing focus of the opponent's defense the way there is for the true all-star centers in the league. And I think that offensive impact is reflected in the impact metrics, which I generally trust a little bit more on offense because offensive box score stats are, are so much more robust and those impact metrics have a lot more to work with in addition to the on-off data. So in RPM, 
He's ranked 12th on defense and 185th on offense. And as I said, he's not the 12th best defensive player in the league. He's not the 50th best defensive player in the league. Like there's just no way. I think even the most fervent Pacers fan would have to acknowledge that by watching him. And if you can't, this might not be the podcast for you. 538's Raptor, 0.9 on offense, 0.1 on defense. And that's a stat where, you know, four, five, six, seven, that's where the, the best in the league are. PIPM, 1.1 on offense, 1.57 on defense. So again, definitely adding value but not an indication in terms of his bread and butter offensively that he's a true difference maker on that end i think you have a very good argument that he's a top 10 center maybe a top 50 offensive player in the nba oh again that's not really supported by the impact metrics but then as an average defensive center in my book with the high replacement level at center and how important the center position is defensively you better just be an unbelievable offensive player and he's not that to me So part of why I had the reaction that I did to his selection is I think it's just a bad process by the coaches. You know, that's one of the things that was said. It's, oh, like, you think you know better than the coaches? Well, number one, I don't think the coaches are trying to pick the 12 best players. And number two, it's not the coach's job to know who the 12 best players in a conference are. And they also have a way that they've always done it. Nate McMillan said, he talked to the coaches and they said, yeah, it was a no-brainer to select him. Well, that's because the coaches look at the standings in the conference, they see the good teams, and they say, okay, who am I going to select as an all-star from this team? They have to have one. You'll hear a lot of this talk of, oh, does this team deserve two all-stars or not? This team has to have an all-star. Well, I believe that the Pacers' success is due to the fact that they have no bad players in their rotation. They have a few good players who aren't even in their rotation, so they're able to withstand injuries. They have a lot of underrated guys on the wing. They have outstanding coaching. Once again, Pacers media didn't see you guys telling me what a moron I was back when I was discussing Nate McMillan as a coach of the year candidate last year. So I'm simply choosing to give more credit to the Pacers' other players and less to Sabonis for their success. And the other aspect of circumstance that allowed him to be an all-star this year is the injuries in the East. First on his own team, if Victor Oladipo is healthy, the coaches just say, oh, the Pacers have a good record and pick up Victor Oladipo. That's what they did last year, even though Oladipo wasn't having the greatest year last year, even before he got hurt. Or if Malcolm Brogdon stays healthy a few more games, maybe he gets to be the Pacers' token representative for having a good record. And again, that's not to denigrate what the overall franchise has accomplished. They're a very good team, but it's possible to be a very good team and not have a player who's one of the 24 best in the NBA or even particularly close to that. You can look elsewhere in the East as well with Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, both being unavailable for most of the year. The fact that John Wall is out with torn Achilles, that probably means that by the coach's criteria, Bradley Beal isn't allowed to be an all-star because his team's record isn't good enough because his teammate is injured. And so that's how you end up getting a player where if you really look at who would be most valued among GMs, if you're just trying to win this year among all the all-stars, I would have him last by a considerable margin. In part, again, because everybody has the center. That's part of why if the Pacers were sniffing around potentially trading him before he signed his extension this year, the offers weren't that amazing. Yeah, I know he's played better. He's improved, but he simply doesn't play as valuable a position as some of these other guys. And that's why when we went through and did our top 10 prospects, he didn't feature prominently compared to some of the other players that are at or around all-star level, like a Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, Brendan Ingram. He's just nowhere near as valuable as those players are due to the relative replaceability of his skill set. So I hope that explained my position to those of you who can at least be halfway objective about it. And hopefully this explanation 
will make you click on every single one of my tweets going forward because, as we all know, that really helps me. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.